hello from Alaska. Today is October 23rd. We have a rather blustery cold fall, late fall day. The ground is freezing up. Ice is forming on the rivers and the lakes, and it's a wonderful day to do a podcast. Today's special guests are climatologists, including Brian Brettschneider. Now, Brian now is a research physical scientist for the National Weather Service of the Alaska region. The second guest of today's podcast is Rick Toman. Recently, Rick received the NOAA 2020 Distinguished Career Award for his work as a, working with the Alaska Center for Climate Assessment. Here's what Brian has to say about Rick receiving his award. Rick is the, uh, is the living, breathing institutional knowledge of uh, climate in Alaska. And uh, for knowing the most stuff, <laughs> uh, Rick definitely uh, is, is, needs to be the recipient of that because he's a, an encyclopedia of knowledge for all things Alaska climate. While the scientific community has had a lot of challenges with budget cuts and cuts to the university systems, as well as the pandemic, there's a lot of teamwork within the scientific community. Brian says, If this was five years ago, or especially, you know, 20 years ago, uh, our productivity level would be uh, a small fraction of, a, of what it is now. So, so while it's, it's difficult for many people, um, uh, and that ranges from, you know, just inconvenient to overwhelming, uh, we, we are still able to get a lot of stuff done uh, with the, the tools that we have available now. Brian, you've had to go down and be the scientific voice down in Juneau. Have you had any recent uh, trips down there? Uh, I, I haven't left Anchorage uh, in you know since March. Uh, <laughs> actually, in in March, I was scheduled to go give a presentation to a, uh, a House Resources uh, Committee in the legislature, uh, but that was canceled uh, because of the pandemic and. Uh, hasn't been rescheduled, probably won't be rescheduled uh, for the foreseeable future. So everything's uh, everything's being done remotely, um, not just myself, I, you know, every conference, every workshop, everything you can think of from a climate point of view uh, has all been canceled for the in-person and, and uh, mostly transitioned to uh, virtual. Well, there's a lot going on in the study of climate. Uh, Rick? Toman had retired, but has uh, found it pretty much impossible to retire. Here's what Rick has to say. Uh, that appears to have uh, <laughs> turned into a myth. <laughs> yeah. The, the often spoke of, but uh, yet to be actually seen retirement. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine, you know, 30 years in your field as a, as a weather forecast specialist and Alaska climate specialist, things are heating up and, and you know, um, with with coming to that said, um, the passion that you have for your career is is obviously highlighted by receiving such a, an honor. You know, I will, um, for the record, I will say that you were the NOAA Distinguished Career Award, um, and uh, and what a, what an honor to receive that. It it um, was very unexpected and but uh, greatly appreciated. You know, you've helped so many people in Alaska, and one of those groups are aviators and so you know with weather forecasting do you realize you know just how much that you do help people out making decision making in the go or no-go decisions yeah it's certainly it's certainly um one of the areas in weather forecasting where the human being still has a major role to play um 
so much of the forecasts these days, especially at the larger scales, are almost entirely driven uh, by the uh, computer models. But aviation is one area because life or death is often determined by things happening at very tiny scales, far, far smaller scales, both in elevation and in the horizontal that the models can't resolve. And that's where experienced forecasters who are intimately familiar with the meteorology, with the climatology, with the terrain. So, you know, Alaska is um, nothing but complex terrain. And so it, a few years of experience, the longer the better, of course, allows uh, human forecasters to still play a vital role in these forecasts, of course, as well as uh, the pilot who is right there and has to make those life or death split second decisions. Well, it, it really is, you know, and, and, you know, there's more availability with the weather cams that we have all around the state and, you know, the coastline weather where you get like Bethel and those areas where you have um, just the hidden hill, you know, you have a lot of flat terrain and you get the hidden hill and you start getting the, the minimums coming down that, uh, you know, people are, are really um, paying attention to all the models that you guys are creating. What, what would be a, a highlight um, for you in your 30-year career um, as far as, you know, early on, I would like to talk a little bit about the early on, like, aha moments. Um, is there something that sticks out where you felt that, um, you know, that you really are making a difference and in, in, in it could be even with um, helping with um, forecasting for firefighting as well? Um, of course, unlike Alaska, quite different, say, the, the um, Midwest, you know, Nebraska, uh, Kansas, Oklahoma, where a lot of forecasters, you know, they go through this regularly where tornado forecasts issuing or not issuing uh, tornado warnings can be the life or death of you know, thousands of people. Thankfully, in my opinion, we don't have that kind of quite dramatic uh, weather yeah. here in Alaska. But I guess um, maybe maybe the forecast that I was most proud of um for folks that remember the 19, the January, what year was it? Let me think. The January 1999 cold snap. Uh, at that time, forecasts beyond three or four days were, were pretty unreliable. But we, we saw in the models strong indications about a week ahead that we were going to go into this incredible, this very deep cold snap. And um, I was a lead forecaster at the Fairbanks Forecast Office at the time. And um, I got all the managers together and said, look, I think we got this super big cold outbreak coming and we might want us to take actions. So amongst the actions that we disseminated were a notification to uh, the air, airline companies that do things like d deliver supplies uh, to rural communities, including fuel, of course. And... Um, and here in Fairbanks, uh, Everett's Air Fuel was actually able to speed up deliveries and got to, I think, every community that was, you know, needed topped off, uh, everyone except one, uh, before the temperatures dropped, you know, into the 60s below in the cold spots in the interior. And um, temperatures were actually low enough aloft that um, all the all the, uh, the, the airlines, the local airlines, stopped 
running planes. Wow. It wasn't that it so, was so cold at the ground, which they're, of course, used to, but it's the air mass aloft was so cold. And so we were able, through our forecast, we were able to make sure that um, just about every community had at least you know supplies of food and fuel to get through that extreme event. While that event of 1999 was helped out with the technology of forecasters, nowadays there's weather cams. Rick talks a little bit about their usefulness. So now we've got um, uh, FAA-run webcams. At, at this point, literally the majority of communities in mainland Alaska. Um, that, of course, is huge. Another thing that has been a real boon to aviation forecasting has been uh, all the automated stations that have been put out at, in rural communities. Um, I like to tell the story when um, when I first started in this business in um, in 1988 in Nome uh, on the midnight shift. We had uh, observations at Nome, uh, Galena, and Fairbanks, and uh, either side of that line, of course. But um, literally. Uh, from one from from the Yukon border to Nome, there were three observations east to west, and now there's uh, you know, dozens, depending what you count as an observation. So that has really, really helped. The FAA sites are not, um, uh, you know, there's never a hundred percent of them reporting due to communications and equipment issues, but it's certainly dramatically, dramatically better uh, than um, in the late '80s. be really hard to retire because you don't want to um you know unplug from all this great technology out there it's it's probably kind of addictive <laughs> um you know it, it, it is um it, it is a rapidly changing field uh, both weather and climate um even just in the two years that i've been retired there's a whole raft of new um especially satellite products uh that have come online um but it's the same in climate uh, Ask Brian. I'm uh, I'm hot on this uh, on this uh, new uh, what's called reanalysis in climate, but it gets down to the scale uh, where we can now at least regionally um, get, uh, for instance, reasonable estimates of monthly precipitation in areas that there are no precipitation gauges at all, uh, and so that that's really exciting. So. Uh, yeah, the myth Great. of retirement continues for some time to come. <laughs> yeah. Well, good. Well, thank you, Rick, for that. And um, I'll go on with my next question to Brian. Um, so, Brian, um, you know, as a, a career Ph.D. climatologist, you know, we had a really warm weather event of 2019. And I wanted to ask you, you know, what kind of highlights did you see in this last summer of 2020 where the climate notable highlights that that would be helpful for me in my interview on Tuesday that you'd like to note? Well, uh, specifically for summer of 2020, um, you know, in many ways, it was rather nondescript um, around Alaska. We we didn't have very many uh, exceptionally warm days. Uh, I think Fairbanks went the entire month of July. Rick could could correct me uh, without hitting 80 degrees. Um, even, um, you know, even in over in Eagle and Fort Yukon, you know, not many warm days and, you know, and globally Alaska was a little bit, uh, as has been much the case of 2020, uh, a little bit uh, cooler than, uh, compared to normal than most places. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was, it was kind of, you know, just the background of the climate is warmer than it used to be. And 
So even what felt like a, a cool, typical summer ended up being either the 16th or the 17th, you know, warmest on record uh, in about a century. And, you know, it is kind of the new normal. You know, if this, if this summer had happened 50, 60 years ago, we would be talking about you know, how warm it was this summer. Uh, instead, we talked about how, how typical and how pleasant it was this summer. So, so we, we do have to kind of keep in mind that, uh, that our, our baseline of expectation is changing somewhat. Um, so, but, and, and then also compared to 2019, you know, 2019 was so exceptional. Uh, for the heat, for the drought, uh, for much of, you know, all of Alaska in July and, um, you know, continuing for the southern half of Alaska through August. Uh, it was really, uh, you know, one for the, you know, one for the ages that people will, will be remembering for a long time. And, and in many ways that can be helpful uh, from, a, from a psychological point of view to, to, to provide context for, uh, for future events. Um, at the same time, on short time scales, it can kind of lull us into thinking, okay, well, things are, things are back to normal or things are, uh, you know, things are the way they used to be uh, when, it, when in fact they're really not. Good point. And, and so that leads me to my next question, Brian. You know, the, um, it seems like we're getting more days of sunshine and the prospect of solar technology in Alaska could be a growing um, resource. What do you think about that? Well, you know, trends in, in, in solar energy or, or incoming solar radiation, shortwave energy, uh, they're, they're pretty tough to, to characterize. We have a number of, of stations around the state, you know, at least a dozen, probably more than that, that actually have solar radiation sensors. Um, we also have satellite estimates um, that, that basically use cloud cover as a proxy measure of, uh, of incoming solar radiation. Um, of course, you know, half the year, there's, there's basically no solar potential. Um, you know, literally Fairbanks, half the year, they have less uh, solar energy than any place in the lower 48 on their shortest day of the year. So, uh, so, we, so we do need to keep that in mind. But, um, you know, it's, it's definitely something that's, that's uh, worth investigating. Uh, but, but as far as what the data are telling us, you know, there's going to be a lot of spatial variability, um, and it's going to need to be um, you know, something that that, uh, that we that we kind of tie together with changes in, in temperature and precipitation. So, you know, precipitation has generally been increasing in most places, and so that would uh, lend you to believe perhaps it's more cloudy. Um, but it also may just be when it does rain, it's raining a little harder, uh, and so the the totals are are, are adding up because of uh, the increase in intensity. So, um, you know, it, it's something that that Alaskans should be. Uh, more familiar with, and, but as far as uh, the, the trends in that, um, I'd have to really dig deeper into that data. Yeah, that's fine. You know, and, and that's a, a neat thing of just the power of, of the general layperson's observations. And, you know, I think that um, the Denali National Park had a lot of snow this last winter, like really a lot. And, um, you know, they just were digging out constantly and it, you can look at pictures. Would you agree that people were saying that about that area? Well, you know, there's always going to be winners and losers. And in fact, Denali last year in August, I believe they had their wettest, you know, month on record in, in the month of August. Um, and then even like say down toward McGrath, they had uh, one of, if not their snowiest winter on record. Huh. Um, so, uh, you know, so there there can be some significant, uh, you know, variations across. In some cases, relatively short. Uh, 
distances. But, you know, winter-wise, when you got north of Anchorage or north of, you know, even from Talkeetna northward, last winter was a pretty good snow winter. Uh, and for a few places, it was a really good snow winter. For yeah. Sure. yeah. Well, it's interesting. Our lakes around here in Talkeetna have quite a high water this spring, really high water. And and I guess we really did have a big winter here. Yeah, the moose were <laughs> on every road you turned on and, and so forth. And, um, you know, float plane pilots were able to get in in channels that they may not have otherwise because there's higher waters on lakes. And so, um, oh, wow. you know, and some of those are spring fed. But you think how re- relative it all is with the underground water tables that we don't think about. But they're often feeding these lakes with a lot more um, higher oh. levels. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I know here in Anchorage, uh, you know, our creeks here in town, uh, they get a majority of their flow from from groundwater flow. Hmm. So uh, when, when you do have a lot of rain and, and there's a lot of percolation into the ground, uh, it can keep those streams up for a long time. Thank you for that, Brian. And um, Rick, I'll ask you the next question. Um, thinking back on, on being a career climatologist, Rick, what would you advise to a young person that would be interested in getting um, into the specialized field of study of the climate? So at this point, you know, there's, there's multiple career options there. Um, there's always going to be a place for research, um, especially on, on physical processes and the interaction between those. Um, and that's, that's uh, you know, we need that. I think, though, that the bulk of the work in climate over the next few decades is going to be um, one in adaption. How do we, we have to live in the world that we have. How do we live in it in the here and now? So, so that adaption. And I think in Alaska and the Arctic in general, um, to a significant extent, we're gonna to have to figure that out on our own. And so I think there's gonna be a lot of work to do in that resent in that realm and that's going to be range from working with individual communities and tribes to figure out what's the best thing to do for this season for the next five years for the next 50 years there's going to be a lot a lot of uh, opportunity there and of course that's not unrelated to the larger policy issue how do we deal with this over the long term what can we do to start to bend the curve um, I think that's one of the hardest things that people have to understand is, okay, I'm, I'm going to walk to the store instead of drive today and all will be better. No, <laughs> this is a very, it took a long, long time to get where we're at. And it's going to take a long, long time to get, to get back to something like it was. That's going to take generations. And so um, that, that longer term planning um, and both, both at the at the community level, the tribal level, but especially at the governmental level, um, state, federal, international, I think those will be a big, um, big realms for climate related uh, sure. past, uh, occupations, if you will, um, over Great. the coming say twenty five years. Um, well, here's a question that I have for both of you, and I'll have both of you think about it as I ask the question. And, um, and it's in regards to the international scientific community. And with that said, we'll start with you, Rick. Um, you know, how much are you working with scientists that are for our neighbors in Siberia and Russia? Uh, there are a lot of international 
collaborations um, in the Arctic and, and subarctic. It's relatively easy because there's only a, a handful of nations involved in that. So it's not like if you were looking at, you know, uh, sub-Saharan Africa, where you would have many different countries um, in, at the table at the same time. The, it, the relatively few countries we have in the Arctic make it somewhat easier. Um, but there is a lot going on, you know, probably for from the U.S. perspective, um, work with the uh, equivalent in Canada, um, Environment and Climate Change Canada, is well-established. Uh, for instance, Brian and I are both uh, on the team that produce the quarterly climate outlook for Alaska and Northwest Canada. And we work with colleagues um, in, with um, ECCC to produce that. And uh, that's online. Um, there's high level uh, support. Both Brian and I are also uh, part of the U.S. team for the Arctic Regional Climate Center, which is a, a, a world meteorological organization, which is part of the U.N., um, and uh, twice a year, uh, this this Pan Arctic group uh, develop a here, here's what's happened in the in the last season. Here's what our forecast is for the upcoming season, and that that includes every uh, Arctic country. And so, um, so there's those kind of uh, long term and uh, and Pan Arctic uh, opportunities as well. And of course, there's a multitude of you know what I would more political type uh, organizations, the Arctic Council, um, that's outside of the climate realm, but that's uh, that's certainly uh, an area where the U.S. is playing a role. Certainly a concern to Alaskans, for instance, what the, the just dramatic, dramatic changes we've seen in the last few years in uh, the Bering Sea, um, from from everything like sea ice to um, where are the Pollock stocks, Um and uh, we're working uh, to increase our cooperation and uh, collaboration with folks on the Russian side. You know, the fish don't know about a border, and uh, but we've we've had historically tough time knowing. You know, are the fish gone, or are they just five miles that way? Um, and so there's a lot of effort to to improve those relationships and and the exchange of science data. Uh, so. Um, in that sense, I think it is hopeful that there there is a solid base of ongoing cooperation panarctically, and um, that can only benefit everyone if we sustain that in the coming years. Well, that's wonderful. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, and it's um, it's neat. Um, Brian, would you like to add something about the international? Thank you, Rick. Um, Brian, do you want to add something about the the international collaboration of scientists and how? Um, how much the teamwork is is in, you know supportive of you all doing your individual pieces of the puzzle. Well, I don't have really very much to add from what Rick said, and Rick has a lot more uh, experience in this area than I do. Uh, but it is worth you know reiterating that you know it is a small group of countries, and from from my limited engagement in the in the international efforts, you know everyone seems to be working together uh, in good faith. Uh, to try to, um, you know, uh, uh, share information, share results, and, and, and plan for future activities. And, you know, you know, if you just follow the news, you, there's a lot of, uh, you know, uh, stories about how, you know, countries aren't getting along, uh, but that's not really the case uh, right now uh, with, with, with Arctic inter- international collaborations. And then I'd also like to reiterate what Rick said, you know, that, that there's so many aspects to, 
to, to studying the climate. It's, of course, it, you know, we're looking at temperatures and sea ice and permafrost and glaciers, um, but we're also looking at uh, fish and we're looking at wildlife and we're looking at subsistence and we're looking at um, lots of different things about how it, it interacts with the, the human and the natural uh, environment and ecosystems. And so it's, a, it's really a, um, it's a collaboration of more than just climate scientists. It's a collaboration of, of, of people from many different disciplines. And, and it's been really encouraging to see how everyone uh, works together. Brian, I wanted to ask you one more question about just the powerful role that social media plays as an informant of the general public on climate. And you have, you know, a large following of like 20,000 followers and people really enjoy your charts and your maps and your um, input. Um, you know, that, how is that now, this day and age where you can take the media out of the loop of informing the public of what's going on in your field of climate, the study of climate? Well, you know, there used to be a model of the scientists, you know, uh, stuck in a lab and, and doing their science and, and sending their results off to a peer reviewed journal and kind of, you know, expecting that, you know, it would work its way over to policymakers or it would you know, if it would, that it would find it the light of day kind of on its own and that it, that, that it was not really the responsibility of the scientists. Um, I think that paradigm has really shifted and that, you know, there's so much information out there uh, and so much bad information, frankly, that um, it becomes important uh, to push out information uh, that, that's meaningful and relevant uh, to, uh, to people in certain locations or to policymakers. Uh, to get it out there so that so they have access to it because there's there's a real uh, demand for this information people people want it people crave it and and for climate information people need it uh, and so it, it really does matter that, that 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 we can send this data out we can we can get it out there kind of a, in many in most cases it's a first draft right so you know this isn't the peer review process this isn't there's there's a lot of pitfalls in it as well uh, there are certainly some bad actors uh, in the community, but not very many. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so you know, so it's. I, I like to think of it as as just the, kind of the modern way of, of disseminating uh, information to the public. And I think that that's you know partially what makes you um, so popular is that you have a team of people behind you as well, and you know working with the University of Alaska Fairbanks and having people like Rick that you guys are in contact continually is, is another way that, um, you know, the scientific community is, has gained strength in this day and age. Well, you know, what, what Rick and I are, are, are studying and, and trying to uh, assess and, and, and analyze, you know, is, you know, is, a really, is really important, right? I mean, everything that, that in the realm of science is important, you know, math, with people study with math and sociology and anthropology and physics, it's all important. Uh, but at this moment in time, you know, the, the, the issues surrounding climate are extremely important to a large number of people. And so, um, you know, people are, are, are really looking for this information. They want to make good decisions. They want to know where we are and they want to know, you know, in some cases what they can do or in other cases, uh, you know, what uh, what trajectories we're heading on, and so um, you know, just just the fact that of what it is that we do, you know, really kind of you know magnifies the uh, uh, the attention that that, that sometimes uh, surrounds us. But it's um, uh, but it, it is it is a you know it's a, it's an efficient way to communicate 
information to the largest number of people. And, and I think it's, uh, it, it's been a great tool for climate. Great. I would agree. And, uh, you know, it's, um, it's just kind of also where people are, too. People really are on the social media these days. And, and um, it is hard to sometimes decipher. There's so much out there. And so, you know, if you can be on someone's regular news feed, then you kind of, you know, are making an impact. So I think that's a, a neat thing that, that you're able to have the ability to communicate in layman's terms on something that is very complex as climate. So... Well, good. Yeah, it is complex, yeah. and and you know Rick uh, has uh, uh, his uh, his following of people that 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 you know really look to him for all the uh, uh, you know the, the most up to date issues with uh, uh, sea ice and temperatures and, and and many other things that are going on in Alaska. There's so much information that, like you said, to have kind of some trusted people that you can go to for. Uh, you know, for, for meaningful, real-time, new information uh, is just really important. Sure. Well, um, well, thanks for that, Brian. That's well said. And so, Rick, you know, with one question that I had kind of tying back to, to aviation and the study of the coastal communities of what changes are happening, you know, what, what um, role is, has drone technology played, and are you involved with that in your studies as well? Um, I am not directly involved, but, uh, you know, one of the, um, one of the features of operational meteorology is that, um, uh, we are data, uh, omnivores, uh, we'll take it any way we can get it. We'll take everything any way that we can get it. It's not, well, we've got to, we've got to calibrate this temperature and we've got to, you know, develop the error bars. Give it to us, and because we, most meteorologists in doing operational work, develop this in this on-the-fly quality control. And does this look reasonable? Yes, then we'll use it. No, it's not really 185 degrees in in Portage Pass. Okay, we'll throw that out. Um, so if, and particularly in the day of, of social media, when anybody can. Uh, post drone footage from anywhere. Um, several years ago, there was a gentleman in Shishmaref who was routinely flying his drone in the springtime around and then posting the video. And that was invaluable source of what's going on with the sea ice. You can see a lot farther 100 foot up in a drone than you can from standing on the beach. And so that kind of, of use, when people are willing to share it in a way that that folks can get to it is incredibly valuable yeah well it you know just even seeing uh when breakup happens and seeing you know villagers with their atvs we probably all know the footage i'm talking about where a big around the corner the sea ice came up and they had to jump on their atvs and drive off and it, it brings the you know the wilderness to people that are in cities and with everybody a lot more dialed in on their computers due to the pandemic you know it's i think people are really craving to get out in nature and not everybody can but i think too that people are getting a little bit lazy with everything is on a screen and you see these incredible things without even having to leave your home so are you were you born and raised in alaska rick no i was uh, born and raised in south central pennsylvania but um when i was in eighth grade civics class and what do you want to do when you grow up 
I wanted to be a meteorologist in Fairbanks, Alaska. So, well, you knew it. Well, my heart's been in Alaska my whole life. That's pretty neat. Well, I think that um, people that are drawn to the, drawn to the north, there, there's something about us. I, I had the similar kind of draw. I was a geography major at the University of Colorado, and uh, I did a field research trip, a field research um, trip in the Arctic Circle on the Hood River with that program, and and it was my first flight in a twin otter on floats. And uh, you know, it took me a while to get up here, but um, I think that it kind of gets in your blood, and and you can't think of anything else but until you're there. <laughs> how about Absolutely. yeah? How about for you, Brian? What brought you to Alaska? Well, we've been here for a little more than 15 years now. So, um, you know, we, my wife and I took a vacation to Alaska and, and we, we said, you know, we got to find a way to get up here someday. And, uh, the company I was working for at the time, uh, was opening up an office in Anchorage and asked if anyone wanted to go to move to Alaska. So, uh, <laughs> so we, uh, we jumped at the chance and, and came on up. Um, and you know, it's, it's been, you know, you know, I like to say, uh, you know, Alaska is not for everybody. Um, but you know, if, if, if it is, you know, for, for, for a lot of people, it's, you know, it's, it's paradise, you know, it's, it's Nirvana. So, um, you know, it, it's the, the, the diversity of, of terrain, of climate, of ecological habitats, of people, cultures, uh, there's really, uh, there, there's so much to, uh, uh to see and experience here. It's it's really special to be able to just go out your back door and see a, a golden eagle, you know, catching a thermal on the ridge, and it's it's nice to um, you know have that because there, like you said, there's not it's not always easy <laughs> living here. <laughs> so I'll say that um, those kind of things still make your heart jump. I've been here what 32 years now, and I you know. The first snow of the year, I'm still so happy to see it. Um, you know, if how many hundreds and hundreds of moose have I seen, you know, out my window and a moose walks by and I'll still run around and where can I get the best view? Um, for me, at least, it never gets old. I would agree with you 100% there. And, uh, you know, as, as an aviator, I feel like such a privilege. I, I don't have to very fly very far um, when I look at my GPS at the end of a season, <laughs> my, my little rounds that I make are often very, like I have, it reminds me of that cartoon where, you know, where's Waldo when he's walking and making his path and looking under here and there. And with the three rivers here in Talkeetna, it's so beautiful and the rivers are always changing and, and you get, you know, the first river ice forming and it's kind of been my draw to become an aerial photographer is kind of my specialty now. And um, I was telling Brian, I, I kind of got a little bit out of um, news stories because it, it just got old. And, and so I kind of branched out and created my own business as an aerial photographer. So I had an excuse to fire up the Cub and go take some pictures. So, You know, what, what you were saying about, uh, you know, you don't have to travel very far. Um, when I lived in uh, Houston, Texas, uh, it was real, we're near an REI store. And the joke was you had to travel like 200 miles to, to use anything. Uh, that, that was for sale in the store. Uh, whereas the REI here in Anchorage, um, you can use everything in the store within 200 miles. Yeah. There's nothing you can't use from mountaineering equipment to rafting to, to whatever. So, uh, yeah, just everything is, uh, is, is relatively close by. 
So, uh, Brian Brett Schneider, and I am a now a research physical scientist with the uh, National Weather Service Alaska Region. Great. Well, um, Brian, thank you so much for speaking with us here in All Cooped Up Alaska, and I look forward to our next conversation. My pleasure. Thank you. Rick Tolman, and I currently work as a climate specialist with the Alaska Center for Climate Assessment and Policy at the University of Alaska. Well, Rick, thank you very much for taking the time to speak with us here at All Cooped Up Alaska. Thank you to these gentlemen who are making a difference in the world of science. That wraps up today's edition of All Cooped Up Alaska, and I'm Katie Ryder. You can visit me on the web at www.katiewritergallery.com and see aerial images of beautiful Alaska. Alaska.